From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Now, we have some bad news for uh, parents of children, school-going children, at least in England, uh, about the, as the teachers we know. I'm avoiding Caroline Hepke's gaze as I say this, <laughs> as, as she's glaring at me over the microphone uh, as the parent in the room. But look, the teachers have rejected the pay offer made to them by the government. We are going to be talking about that story with our strike supporter uh, in just a moment. But we know it's going to be obviously a very big political ramifications um, but I wanted to talk instead about travel chaos. Hooray! Hooray our old back. friend. Exactly. More strikes. In, in more of the, well, more strikes, but also a return to our, our favourite uh, long queues at Dover. Um, I actually did this last year and I swore oh, no. never again. Uh, even though there, were, there was no strike action last year, it was awful. It took absolutely hours, uh, really added to the journey. So I totally empathise with the frustration that people had at Dover over the weekend trying to work, get away for the East Holiday. So if you, if you missed it, essentially what happened was is there were massive queues, particularly for coach passengers going yes. in and out of Dover. So waiting times four to six hours at their worst point over the weekend, all resolved by... Monday morning, this morning, um, but lots of questions over the weekend about whether or not this was really to do with Brexit. So Ella Braverman speaking, saying uh, no, that it wasn't. But the CEO of Dover, uh, Doug Bannister, telling Sky News that the post-Brexit environment meant that every passport had to be checked. And that was part of the reason of why I think you can kind of argue it either way, can't you? Clearly, clearly, if Brexit hadn't happened, then we probably wouldn't be having these queues. But I do think that Brexit is... Piling excuse for a bit of French intransigence. Can I can, can I say that on air? Well, I've said it now, haven't I? Yeah, you have. And <laughs> also, I do, I do wonder if some of this is kind of companies not employing enough staff. You remember all the chaos at the airports in this country mm. uh, last year, and that was because simply the airlines hadn't, or the mm. airports hadn't employed enough people. So I think it is a bit of that as well. Okay, look, I, I think if you admit that it wouldn't be happening if Brexit had not happened, you can't argue it both <laughs> ways. Would be my view. Thank you very much. But well done for trying. Yes, and uh, also. In terms of passports, the other strike action that I was mentioning is that workers at UK passport offices are going on strike for five weeks as of, well, from today. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really difficult moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, especially, I didn't realise this, but apparently, according to according to people in the know, March is the period when most people start to finalise their summer holiday plans and people get a jump on year-end holiday reservations. I don't know about you two, but I'm very behind in that case. Uh, no, I'm pretty much... Okay. I'm All right, Caroline, most- fine. <laughs> I... Yeah, I've got, I'm quite inefficient. I was, funny, just, I was discussing this at the weekend with some friends actually who always plan their entire year's holiday the year before. So everything is booked up by the end wow. of December. Oh. Whereas I'm thinking of booking something for next weekend. So I'm it's on the other end of the scale. 
does depend how many minions you have to take with you, though, I suppose. Well, on yes. Your you and very large holidays. staff have to take with them away. Oh, right. Well, yeah. we want to turn now actually to uh, some new Bloomberg analysis of jobs in the UK. And Manchester is the best place in the UK for new jobs, beating London and what could be a good boost for the government's levelling up agenda. This is Bloomberg number crunching of data from the recruitment side read. And our UK economics reporter, Lucy White's here with us uh, for more on this story. Um, Lucy, does this mean we should all be moving to Manchester? <laughs> Potentially, if you're after a job, it might be the best place to uh, to go at the moment. Um, we, yeah, as you say, we've been given this uh, enormous cache of data from Reed, and we've basically been having a look at where the jobs hotspots are in the UK at the moment. And obviously, London is still the biggest pool of jobs in the UK. You know, the, the, there's the, there's far more jobs on offer here than than elsewhere in the UK. But when you analyse that by the population, you know how many number of uh, you know the number of jobs per worker Manchester is is far ahead of anywhere else you know the the only other areas in the country with job postings above 200 uh, per 10,000 workers are in Milton Keynes, Reading and Cambridge so obviously they're all within a 60 mile radius of the capital as well so as you say you know the fact that Manchester is doing so well and you know has so much opportunity you know it's a it's a good start for the government's leveling up agenda but um you know, at the same time, there are still areas that are really lacking in the UK. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about the, the places that came out top, because aside from Manchester, which is already a city which is doing pretty well, and it's grown a lot in the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of the others are kind of some of the usual suspects, aren't they? Like Cambridge exactly. is obviously a boom city. Mm. Uh, you know, Reading, Milton, Keynes, they're all in the south, aren't they, mm-hmm. these ones that are doing well? Yeah. So many of the places the government wants to level up are not in this list. Well, exactly. I mean, at the other end of the scale, with, you know, sort of around about 10 times fewer jobs per worker than in Manchester. We've got, you know, Birkenhead. Um, there's others like Hull, Plymouth that are all at the bottom end of the scale as well. So, um, you know, it, it shows that despite the the focus on levelling mm. up that we've had under the Conservative government over the last few years, there are a lot of those areas that, you know, have been struggling over the last few years that still are, where there's, you know, opportunities are very thin on the ground for workers. What about the cost of living factor in this, though? What sorts of jobs are we talking about? What kind of starting salaries? Because we've spent a long time talking about inflation, the pressure on people's pay packets, mm-hmm. and then starting salaries sort of going up in the private sector to sort of keep up with that. So what kind of jobs are they? Yeah, well, in the top uh, in, the, in the, those top areas where we're seeing a lot of, of, of jobs, where we're seeing, um, you know, kind of real activity, it's areas like legal, um, accounting, uh, biotechnology, um, the sort of IT and telecom sector, which includes, you know, pretty lucrative sectors like, um, uh, you know, software engineering, software development, that kind of thing. And then at the bottom end of the scale, those areas are far more reliant on, you know, sort of admin, secretarial work, um, you know, manufacturing jobs, which tend to be a, a lot, you know, as you say, um, less well paid. Uh, so it, it does kind of show that there's, there is this divide in the country as well, where, you know, we've got these kind of really thriving areas where job opportunities are lucrative and, and common. And, you know, obviously we've seen so much labour market tightness that, that, that you know, there, there has been demand for workers, but that's not necessarily evenly spread across the country. What's been this political reaction to these numbers since the data has been published? Well, we've had Andy Burnham, uh, who's, who's the mayor of Greater Manchester, kind of saying to us, you know, this shows the impact that devolution can have. Um, you know, obviously Manchester is is one of the more mature devolved areas of the UK um, or of England. And, you know, 
we've had Jeremy Hunt putting more emphasis uh, in the budget last month on devolving, you know, powers and uh, budgetary decisions to other areas of the country as well. So, you know, um, Andy Burnham's uh, encouraging other areas of the UK to to embrace devolution and embrace this power um, that they that they might be able to take on. Um, on the other hand, we've got you know um, other others in the Labour Party saying you know that this proves that the government's levelling up agenda isn't necessarily working. You know, Jeremy Hunt saying, you know, we're giving more money to different areas. We're hoping that, you know, over the next few years, they'll really be able to take advantage of that. But at the moment, you know, it, it's slow progress. I mean, the, the gap between the, 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 the places that are doing well and the places that are doing badly is, is pretty enormous. Is there any sense of how this is changing over time? Is the situation kind of getting getting worse i should say at the moment we've, we've only been looking at the um built-up areas with with large populations populations of over a hundred thousand people so um this is sort of focused on the big cities but at the moment it's kind of very much stayed the same over the the, the time that we've got data for which goes back to 2018 you know the, there's very little movement in um in the kind of areas that are at the bottom of the rankings you know there's there's very little sign that they're moving up the scale at all um and although there are you know kind of a, a few a- of those sort of lower down areas where mm. um where the you know kind of job postings have picked up since the pandemic um it's 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 not huge progress um, can I put a contrarian point here <laughs> to listeners and to a little panel that we have here in, in the radio studio? What's the point of levelling up? The size of Britain is so small. You know, you should surely be able to commute or get get to a job, you know, even if you don't live in a kind of boom area. I, you know, I, I say that facetiously. I know how difficult transport links are. But, but that would be my point kind of coming from the perspective maybe of France, which is four times the land mass, or the United States, which obviously is enormous. Mm. We spend so much time talking about levelling up in a, in a very, very small nation. I think th- this was the point um, that Jim O'Neill was trying to get across. Uh, he was he obviously the former Goldman Sachs economist, um, now spends a lot of time investing in the north of, of England. Um, he was saying, you know, if you try and spread the money too thinly, you know, try, kind of try and boost every little town and every little city centre that you've got around the country, you're just going to end up spreading the jam too thinly. You know, you're not going to get any kind of boost. You, you know, you're just going to end up distracting um, from a- any kind of growth that we've got in, in, you know, larger areas of the of the UK. But at the same time, I think, you know, we can't continue with centralising all growth in mm. London. You know, um, the transport links simply aren't good enough for, for someone, say, in the north of England to be able to commute to London every day. And, you know, whereas spreading the jam too thinly across every town and city might not be an option, you do need more devolved hubs where, you know, um, good jobs can can be generated. Mm. Um, people can travel from, you know, villages, towns um, to, to find these kind of lucrative opportunities. And you want people who, you know, might want to uh, who've been to university and you know we've got amazing universities all over the country and a lot of people want to stay in those areas you know we don't necessarily want but obviously we've got a housing problem in London as well yeah. we don't necessarily want to attract everyone who wants to you know be in banking for example or in um, you know in the legal sector not everyone needs to come to London. Yeah and I do think there's been a positive story on this over the last 10 or 15 years or so that a lot of people do stay in Leeds and in Manchester and in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Newcastle, whereas they would have all come to London in the past. I think, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, everybody mm. wanted a good job when they left university, immediately had to come to London. But now partly because London's so expensive, mm. but also because I think there are more and better jobs in these northern cities. Well, People uh, stay there or they move straight to Manchester. Well, or what I feel happened with my generation quite a lot, which is 
the, all of the graduates came to London for a short period of time and then migrated back again to those university towns where actually there are it's kind of a knowledge centre and also cheaper home prices and, and mm. people move back there. Yeah, Bloomberg's levelling up index has been looking at how the government's promises to improve many of the economic fortunes of of parts of the country uh, have been falling behind and that only 6% of constituencies have seen an overall improvement um, since May, the vast majority continuing to struggle. Lucy, I wonder, does this data essentially confirm what we've already been hearing from the Bloomberg Leveling Up Index? I think so, and you raise a good point there as well, because obviously, um, Caroline, when you asked about, you know, what's the point of levelling up, um, it was one of the Conservative government's core promises, and it was perhaps one of the um, reasons that persuaded a lot of those constituencies around the Red Wall. And a lot of these cities that still aren't doing particularly well, um, you know, in terms of job prospects, are kind of around that Red Wall region. So, you know, if if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, why do we do this? Because, you know, it's what the it's what the population voted in. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily looking good. Yeah, the irony, of course, is that the centre of these cities, the centre of Manchester, is incredibly Labour, but it is the the surrounding bits mm. which are which are the Red Wall. Which the Tories took some of those more deprived parts of Greater Manchester, and those are the places which I think aren't being levelled up. So, uh, uh, interesting how the politics all sort of feeds into that. Okay, great stuff. Lucy White, our economics reporter, giving us details of that new Bloomberg analysis of Reed recruitment job vacancy data. Yeah, talking of politics, I want to yeah. discuss a bit of polling. Oh, yes. Okay, we're <laughs> always up for that on a Monday. So we've talked a few times on the show about how Rishi Sunak is doing, and there's a feeling, I think, amongst uh, certain commentators that he's had a pretty good few weeks. He's mm. uh, had the Windsor framework, of course, which is widely seen as a success, managing to square uh, a difficult circle, and a budget which didn't crash the markets. Well, that's always oh, a win, yes. It's a high bar of achievement, isn't it? <laughs> always nice. Uh, so interesting polling today from Conservative Home. They've uh, published their cabinet lead table. Now, this is that uh, monthly poll of Tory members. I don't quite know how scientific it is, but it is certainly uh, interesting. It's also known as the one that Ben Wallace uh, always comes top of. Uh, some reason, very popular with Tory members. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, we uh, Sunak has leapt from sixth from bottom to sixth from top. So this the is list quite is longer than twelve people, right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Thank you, thank you, Stephen, for, for, for verifying that. It is. It is more than twelve people. Yes, yeah, so that is quite a big, quite a big jump. Uh, he now has a score of plus forty-four, not quite Wallace's um, plus eighty-five, but you know who could be Ben Wallace? That's uh, virtually impossible. Um, and he comes just below uh, Kemi Badenoch, James Cleverly, uh, Suella Braverman, also up a lot, uh, and uh, Penny Morden. So uh- a big jump. Um, in uh, the PM's ratings. But he's still behind all of those names and Suella Braverman over the weekend. Um, I mean, that's quite controversial, but loved by the base. Yes, well, she's jumped up the uh, the poll quite a lot as well. And so I do wonder how much of this is to do with, there's been a lot of... Uh, of talk so far we haven't really got all the action yet a talk about solving the the, the boats issue the small boats I mean, boats issue and that i think is, is popular is that the really base, a, a solvable issue i suppose but but maybe people like what they hear in terms of being tougher on it well at least there's the talk about there being progress on it anyway like if you think about rishi sunak's trip to france and this new deal with the french over policing on on the other side of the english channel as well the signs of progress are perhaps 
enough at this stage to reassure those Tory voters who are very worried about what's going to happen and Tory members and ministers, I imagine, too, about what's going to happen over the next year and a half. Yeah, I mean, I think it looks like there's there's movement or it looks like the they are working on something, doesn't it? Mm. But as you say, I think it is, it, it's a very tricky thing to sort out. And certainly of those five key priorities laid out by the Prime Minister at the start of the year, surely this is the one which is which is most tricky. The pledge actually says we will pass new laws to stop small boats, making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are detained and swiftly removed. I mean, passing new laws, sure, they can do that. I think the other stuff, uh, we're going to have to wait and see, aren't we? Yeah, no, absolutely. It was pointed out at the time that you could sort of drive a bus through that pledge that, you know, that, that saying that you're going to pass a new law isn't, isn't stopping it or isn't actually getting results. It's just saying that you would take some steps towards it. So, yes, I think there were some some concerns about that. Yeah, an interesting poll from uh, uh, for the, from the Times by YouGov found that only 21% of people believe uh, that Sunak will succeed in stopping the boats. So I suppose you could look at that as positive for the government as far as people have very low expectations this is going to get fixed. Uh, so in which case, if there is any uh, uh, news on it uh, resolving itself, mm. then I suppose that will be seen as a good thing. That'll be a question of what we see the government do next on this as well and, and, and over what period we expect to measure success on that front as well. Uh, well, let's turn back then, as promised, to discuss the other big political story of the day. And this is teachers rejecting a pay rise in favour of more strikes. Our intrepid strikes reporter, Eamon Farhat, is with us uh, for more on this story. Eamon, I feel like we only talk to you when it's bad news uh, and very rarely when it's good news. Tell us a bit more about uh, what exactly this offer was and why the teachers have turned it down. Yeah, so ministers had proposed this one-off um, £1,000 bonus payment for teachers for kind of the 2022 year. And then next year, they were going to get this 4.3% pay rise. The issue was that there wasn't very clear on what the fund, where the funding would come from. And some teachers and some in the union were saying that there would have to be cuts in some schools to allow for this to go through. Now, the government did push back on that. But teachers, yes, did vote overwhelmingly 98% against this offer. Um, so now they're going back on strike at the end of April and beginning of May. And yeah, it's quite a difficult one because we've had now quite a few offers to different unions. Um, but at the end of the day, it is the members who have to who have their final say and who can kind of disrupt mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, look, this is incredibly worrying. So in May, you've you've got an extra bank holiday for um, mm-hmm. for, for King Charles. Um, you also have real worries that not enough attention has been paid to the huge gap in education that a generation of students has now had because of the pandemic. And now 98% of teachers voting in this poll for more strike action. Eamon, I'll, I'll be cheeky here and say authoritarian dictators struggle to get those numbers. Yeah, no, you're right. 98% definitely is a clear message that, you know, they're not happy with this. I think the difficulty is that for so long, all these unions, teachers, health, everything, were talking about inflation, 10%, you know, these big, big numbers. And then when they get the offers from the government, it's more around 5% or even below. So it's difficult for members to then accept that because they were told for so long that, you know, they should, that this is a real-time pay cut. And now they, they will be voting for that same real-time pay cut. So that's probably why um, there's such a clear message that they're against this. Now, that the NEU themselves were actually against this offer. For other unions, they also supporting offers um so it is kind of interesting that they are going with they're going the same way that the union's telling them to go um but what does that mean for the health unions like the rcn they have an offer of about five percent they're saying that members should be voting for it but within the actual membership there's a lot of anger against that five percent number because again they were told for so long that inflation is so high so why should they all of a sudden accept this lower five percent number yeah, Eamon, you mentioned the NHS. I wonder if you could just bring us up to date. This is a bit of a challenge uh, I'm setting here, but can you just bring us up to date with where we're at with 
with all the other strikes? Because some of them have been resolved now, haven't they? And some of them sort of look like they're inching towards re- resolution. Where, where are we at with, with all of these strikes? Yes, in the last couple of weeks, we've definitely moved very, very quickly. So basically, all of the health unions now have received the same offer, and they're putting that to members. So that's kind of the nurses, that's the ambulance workers, that's, that's everyone. Um, as I said, it's about a 5% offer. And they're putting that to, to members. All the unions actually have told members they should be voting for the offer, except for Unite, who represents some health workers and ambulance workers. So we'll be getting the result of that at some point. And again, like this teacher deal, this this could be the case that, that, that members rejected and we're back in kind of strike action. The rail side, we also have um, negotiations underway and offers underway. So there's no strike dates for, for rail workers um, on the, at the RMT or elsewhere. The place where we have um, still quite a lot of strike action will be the junior doctors who have four days of strikes in April. And also we just had the news coming in the last maybe half an hour that, that some senior consultants will be balloted for strike action as well from the BMA. And we also have the PCS, the civil servants, who have a major day of strike action where they're all walking out again. Uh, at the end of April, and they also have the passport offices that are fully on strike for this month into the beginning of May, which could disrupt people's summer breaks. And finally, Heathrow having strikes as well, um, starting today, which is causing disruption. About 300 flights, BA flights have been cancelled. This is security workers at Heathrow who are walking out. So still some action, but definitely less than we were seeing kind of uh, last month. Eamon, we're imagining you having to carry around your encyclopedia of strikes at all times to keep track of of how all these things are working. But, I mean, it does seem to be interesting when we think about the government strategy and all of this. It wasn't long ago that we were talking about this positive sentiment about the potential resolution of so many of these strikes. And it does seem like, listening to you list off the number there that are unresolved, is that perhaps that position is souring. Is this perhaps the government strategy coming apart? I mean, I think that the government strategy for a long time was, yeah, really not to budge. And then all of a sudden, they kind of try to make deals with everyone. And if you try to make deals with everyone, it really pushes everyone into a corner in the sense that, you know, they're seeing everyone else agreeing, so they have to then kind of agree to that too. Um, the government, in some ways, you know, they because they've been able to call off so many strikes in so many major areas, like rail, which affects so many people, uh, like health as well, it means that they, they are looking good. But as I said, you know, if members don't go along with those deals, because again, at the end of the day, it's not the union leaders who decide, it is the members who decide, then this could all fall apart and kind of back to square one and the government has to get back into the t- back into the negotiation room. And it's it's not uh, not very easy because they, they do make it seem like these offers are kind of the best offer they can make. So if mm. the members reject it, it leaves us in a difficult position. Okay, but on the other side, you could equally make the argument that the government's done extremely well in the sense that it has uh, struck a hard line note against a whole raft of um, unions that have, have been on strike for months. And yet it has largely succeeded in keeping those wage rises down. So from the government's perspective, this is good for them in terms of the public finances. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. I mean, they, the, the, the point is that these pay rises shouldn't be stoking inflation. That's kind of the point the government's trying to make, which is why they, they agree to these pay rises around 4 or 5%. Um, but if these pay rises aren't enough to you know, quell the anger of workers and people are still going on strike and you know we have more major strike days like we're going to have at the end of April, uh, and it's just an unresolved issue still weighing on the government, then it, it can be difficult because then where do you go from there? Eamon, you talk to people in these unions all the time, and I, I'm wondering what the feeling is among them. For some, it's been an extremely long campaign of strikes and a very difficult set of negotiations. Are, are they still as resolute now as they were at the start of this? Are they worried about their own members getting fed up of having to strike? 
I think definitely. I mean, I think that, of course, these are very hardworking people who want to get the best deal, but they recognize that their members do get tired. You know, a lot of them are, are not going to get paid on a strike day, for example. And even themselves, you know, it's, it's been long, long months of trying to negotiate with the government. And so they were quite happy with the deals they were getting from the government um, in the last few weeks, these 5% deals. Um, and so I would say that there's definitely big willingness on both sides to kind of resolve this. You know, union leaders are very happy to try and resolve this very quickly because they know that members will, you know, have this kind of strike fatigue and and they can't drag this on for too long. On the other hand, there are some unions who are saying that, you know, this is it, they're in for the long term, they're building up their kind of war chest of strike funding to pay their members on strike days. So it kind of goes both ways, but definitely there is a, a feeling that we want this to be over pretty soon because it's been going on for a bit too long. Eamon, you mentioned the rail strikes uh, earlier. That is one of the, the, the longest-running strike, mm-hmm. but, but it, it's mostly resolved, isn't it? Can you just kind of explain some of the nuance around the, the, the rail strikes? Yeah, exactly. So on the rail strike side of things, you said it's been going on basically for almost a year now. Mm-hmm. So, so the RMT, um, the first ones that come into the strike action, then we have also ASLAF for the train drivers, who are small unions but a more disruptive union. Um We've gone to a point there where we've got some deals um, that have gone through, but we're also still um, in negotiations with so the RMT, the RDG, sorry, who represent the major um, rail companies. Um, they're in negotiations now, in kind of intense negotiations with um, the RMT to try and resolve that. I'm still not kind of completely sure where that's going for the moment, but what we do know is that there are no strike dates on, and you know, kind of until we hear otherwise, that's where we are at, and probably we'll be getting a deal that will go to members. Okay. Eamon, really good to have you on the programme uh, with your detailed reporting then. That is Bloomberg Strikes reporter Eamon Farhart. So a few more weeks of difficulty and pain, at least after the Easter holiday. The Easter break gives us parents a little bit of relief, but then coming back into the summer term, it's going to be really tough. Well, I'm worried that if Eamon's renewed his passport or not in time, because I hope he deserves a holiday after the year that he's had in this. Anyway, Eamon, always uh, great to have his view as someone who's across, of course, all of the many and varied strikes. Now, um, you and I on Friday did a really nice programme all about... All right, just because uh, I was off. <laughs> no, not to exclude you, Stephen. <laughs> but just to mention that it was a really nice um, a day where we talked in depth about the housing market in the UK. I know we're always obsessed about it, but I think we gave you quite a different perspective. The nationwide house price figures. We had Ray Bolger on from John Charcoal, the mortgage advisors. We also had our own Neil Callanan on. And there's a lovely piece sort of in addition to that today on the terminal wealthy London homeowners uh, are doing battle it would seem uh, with buyers they are holding on to the idea that they can keep getting those top top rates in terms of selling uh, properties in the capital Savile say that the uh, buyers want to see big discounts and now there's a kind of widening gap between the two yeah, the story is all about wealthy individuals in London, but I think this is going to be a story for the rest of the country mm. as to whether people are going to uh, meet in the middle or if sellers are just going to sit there and not budge and the market will just kind of get in, get frozen. That's yeah, absolutely. Who capitulates first? Mm, something to watch <laughs> anyway. Okay, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.